0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant podcast. Uh, we have an exciting episode for you today with another one of my former colleagues. In fact, although people don't remember, may not have this foremost in mind. We have Tim Alberta, the author of, and I'm holding it up like there's a camera in the room, (laughs) (laughs) American Carnage on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. Tim, welcome aboard. Jonah, it's great to see you, man. I think the last time we had a drink together was in a, Random hotel bar in North Carolina. Chapel Hill. Yeah. I was there for a speech at the bar drinking alone as I am wont to do. Yes. And then you came down to drink alone as you <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> or get a beer yes. before
1: bed. Soulmates. <laughs>
0: and our eyes met and you're like, uh but um and so for people who don't know, Tim is now known as the chief political correspondent for Politico Magazine. That's, That's right. Yep. But you were our guy in the field twenty sixteen at National Review. Yeah where, thanks to National Review, you cultivated all of these wonderful sources. Basically. And that was funny. I was reading in there, and I completely forgot. We'll get to the meat of all this stuff. I completely forgot until I was reading in it that we did not tip you off about the against Trump no. issue. No. No, I had no
1: idea. And in fact, I, I think Rich knows this, but probably nobody else, uh, because I just didn't go around advertising it or bitching about it, frankly, but I, was, I had been working for weeks... To get a sit down with Trump, mm-hmm. and I had been emailing with Hope Hicks, and it looked like I was going to get on the plane with him the following week, and so I was excited about that because they're busy, and he he was obviously quite ascendant at that point, and so it had become much harder to get serious, sustained time with him, and so I, had fi- I thought I had finally locked it down, and I can still remember I was in my son's room changing a diaper. There's a metaphor in here somewhere, obviously, <laughs> and my phone just starts blowing up, and. I had no idea that the that the against Trump cover was coming, and and I text Eliana Johnson, our yeah. friend who was of course the Washington editor. I said, "What the hell is this? What was somebody going to tell me about this?" And she's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I thought you knew." So of course I get an email from Hope that night, and she says, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and, and cancel that that interview yeah, next week, yeah. Yeah.
0: which is fair, you know." Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't blame her. <laughs> um, it's funny. There, uh, that is maybe the second most egregious failure to have one hand talking to the other hand, as it were, at in national review of my experience because I did a cover story called Bomb Canada, which had the... Um, I remember this. ...had the cover of the Canadian Rock uh, Mounted Police, which I felt bad about later because the Mounted Police were the good guys in the story of Canada with the words wimps over them, and that was the week that the U.S.-Canadian Friendship Society had taken out ad, a long ad buy for National Review. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. So on the cover is like this attack on Canada, on the back cover is like Canada and America. It was, it was on the back cover? I think the back inside cover. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so that's amazing. Just proving that the idea that that we are slaves editorially to the, or we were slaves to the Business side. The advertisers. Just, you know, yeah, yeah, we have the high wall separation. Forget about it. That is great. So anyway, I actually want to talk about that against Trump stuff later, but uh, let's get to the, the, the crux of it. The book is doing great. Has, do we have the word on it's too early for sales, right?
1: Well, so it just came out on on, on Tuesday the sixteenth. Pre-orders so, uh, must have been good, though. Pre-orders, I think, were pretty good. Uh, obviously, we had some. Well, look, we had a couple of days there where we rolled out the first excerpt in Politico magazine, and it went gangbusters. Got a, got a ton of attention online, and that the condensed version of basically Access Hollywood Weekend from right. chapter sixteen of the book, and so that got a ton of attention. And then some early excerpts leaked out in the Post. that got a ton of attention. Uh, obviously, the the headline in that Post story was Paul Ryan going after the president in pretty personal terms, talking about Stormy Daniels in so many words and saying, you know, be a good person. You know, don't do this. Don't cheat on your wife. Don't call a woman horse face, et cetera. And, tr- and, and, and Ryan really uh, kind of unburdening his conscience in this interview we did for the book. And of course, that set off Trump. And so the news cycle sort of came to us in that sense. And uh, yeah, so, so the early indications have been really good. We won't find out for, you know, a few more days whether we, whether we hit any bestseller list. But, you know, I'm just happy that people seem
0: to get the, the idea of the yeah. book, So it's interesting. On the Ryan thing, which I actually wrote my LA Times column about, I heard you on, I think it was MSNBC. I don't get the sense you've been doing a lot of Fox. Fox has not had me
1: on yet. Yeah. Um, shockingly.
0: Um, we can talk about that too. Um,
1: Although Brett Baer has been trying, so I'll give Brett credit. Yeah. No, Brett's a good guy.
0: Um, I'm going to be on the special report tonight. But I saw you somewhere saying of all the things in the book that surprised you, that have gone sort of viral and made headlines, the Ryan story wouldn't have been one of them, right? Or you, you you didn't think that would be one of the things that would have the legs that it did. What are some of the things, this is a tricky question, what are some of the things in the book, and for listeners, the book is really fantastic. It, it basically, it's less about a Trump White House thing than about how we got to the Trump White House. Trump only enters the story towards the end of the book. What are some of the things that you thought were going to have sort of instantaneous vi- virality that haven't, caught on yet, that people haven't picked up yet.
1: Yeah, that's a good... Well, so there... I mean, I'll give you a couple of anecdotes and then I'll give you maybe a theme. I mean, so like anecdotally, um, I have the whole story of basically how Mike Pompeo, who was a big Marco Rubio right. supporter during the 2016 primary, there's this incredible scene where uh, at the Kansas caucuses back in March of 2016, uh, the, the candidates are there and their supporters are there, their surrogates, to, to give speeches before the votes are cast. And Mike Pompeo goes out on stage, and he's a high-profile Marco Rubio surrogate. And, of course, at the time, Mike Pompeo is the congressman from Kansas's 4th District. And Pompeo goes on stage... And just rips Trump a new one, just mm-hmm. says, this guy is an authoritarian. He he sounds like a tyrant. This is not who we are as Americans. We need to reject this kind of you know totalitarian talk. And, and we as conservatives need to understand that someone like Marco Rubio is the polar opposite of Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Trump is backstage listening to this. And he says to uh, Ted Cruz's campaign manager, Jeff Rowe, he says, who the hell is this guy? (laughs) And Rowe says, that's Mike Pompeo. He's a, you know, he's a congressman from Kansas. And Pompeo then started launching in on Cruz and he was kind of doing a two for one. And now Jeff Rowe, Ted Cruz's guy, he's getting upset. So Trump looks at him and he says, hey, should we go put a scare into him? And, and Rowe says, yeah. So the two of them, they go to the wings of the stage where uh, they can see Pompeo and Pompeo can see them. And they just start shooting daggers at him. They're <laughs> sitting there staring. And for anybody who doesn't know Jeff Roe. He's a big, big guy. And Jeff's got this long like hitman's goatee. Yeah. And he's a very intimidating looking dude. And, and Trump's got this world famous scowl, obviously. So the two of them are trying to put this scare in a Pompeo. Well, fast forward, you know, eight months or whatever it is. And, and Trump's won the election, obviously. And Mike Pence is handling much of the personnel during the transition in terms of recommending, you know, high level appointees and cabinet secretaries and the like. And Mike Pompeo's got this sterling reputation, obviously. He's a, he's a former Army guy, and he was first in his class at West Point. And so they recommend him to become the CIA director, and Trump signs off. He says, sure, yeah, this guy looks the part. He's got a great <laughs> resume. And then somebody reminds him, hey, this is the guy who at the Kansas caucuses basically said, like, you're a tyrant, that you were an authoritarian, and 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 we want nothing to do with you. And Trump gets on the phone with Jared Kushner and says, we gotta take this back. We can't... We, this is what I get for letting Pence pick everybody. And... It's amazing because obviously Pompeo not only served as CIA director, but is now secretary of state and has been one of the, the staunchest allies of the president and really one of the guys who the president has come to lean on heavily. Right. And
0: the Trump whisperer.
1: Yeah, yeah. really, really is a Trump. And, and Pompeo is sort of a a steadying force within the administration. And look, this is the story of a lot of these different folks, right, who you can look at and say, well, how dare they go back on their word? And I'm not sitting in a place of judgment as much as I try in the book to sort of put yourself in the shoes of some of these folks who feel like. Look, if you think it's a show now, like what happens when people like me walk away? What happens right. when he he brings in the true believers and the third stringers to 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 surround him and kind of encourage his worst impulses? So that that's a story that I'm surprised hasn't taken off just because how close they were and and Pompeo as much as anybody was a very very harsh Trump critic. Um you know, some other stories sort of along that same wavelength. There's a there's a young woman named Madeline Westerholt who sits just outside the Oval Office, she's the president's executive assistant. She right. basically is the chief of staff. She runs the entire West Wing. She is incredibly influential, and and Trump is basically in love with her. Uh, and I don't mean that in a romantic sense at all. But he, I think, she's become like a daughter to him. Mm-hmm. And she came from the RNC. She was a a party staffer, kind of a low level, mid level party staffer. And on election night, 2016, it's important to 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 realize that there were a lot. Of young party staffers in the GOP who did not want Donald Trump to win on election night 2016, because they're you know a lot of these people who get into this work, Jonah. You know this. They're they're very idealistic, and they view Trump as a betrayal of so much right. of what they believe in. I heard from a lot of these people. <laughs> I'm sure you did. And Reince Priebus, mind you, and I I think I write about this in the book. Had had gone to some of them on any number of occasions and said like, don't worry, this guy's not going to be our nominee, yeah. right? During the primary. So fast forward to election night 2016, and when the returns are coming in, and they realize at RNC headquarters that Trump is going to win, a number of these people are very upset. And there is some crying, legitimate shedding of tears. But nobody there is more upset than this young woman, Madeline. She is hysterical. She is inconsolable. And the reason that I can paint this so vividly in the book is because I talked to a half dozen people inside the RNC who were there that night who were like, geez, you know, it's going to be OK. And they're trying to they're trying to tell her it's going to be OK. Well, fast forward and she winds up getting a job in the transition, helping out with some minor things around Trump Tower. And then Trump sees her and says, oh, she looks the part. Let's bring her into the Oval. And she winds up being arguably, the one of easily one of the two or three most powerful people in the West Wing. And it had never been reported until the book came out that, that she had been hysterical and weeping on election night at, at the thought of Trump winning. So there are a couple of things like that, that, sure. that uh, obviously, that anecdote did get a little bit of steam in the last couple of days because somebody had tweeted it out.
0: Yeah. Um, no, I saw something about it. Maybe I read it in the book. I, for disclosure to listeners, I, I don't get a lot of six to seven hour blocks of time these days with between the day drinking and the, <laughs> the, the bench warrants. But, um, so I've been dipping in and out. It's a great book. to just, You can sort of, you can index surf and just look up different things at different times. And one thing I don't remember seeing in there, since you brought up Mike Pence, you do say that Mike Pence was a, more of a power player in the early part of the administration than people realize, right? He was like the real play, inside player in 2017, at least. Yeah, much more. um I have heard, with absolute confidence, conflicting stories about during the transition, about how, whether or not Chris Christie completely blew the planning because he, you know, listen you know, to Chris Christie almost every Sunday on, on 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 ABC. He says all of these problems have to do with the fact that they didn't follow my plan during the transition. And then you talk to other people more in Pence world. And they will say, you don't understand. We got there. They never thought he was going to win. It was a total chaos, and we had to sort of fix everything at the last minute. Do you have a sense of which one's more true?
1: Yeah, and it's probably a cop-out, but it's I think it's sort of a split-the-baby situation. Uh-huh. So, so look, Christie is right in the sense that they had already done all the vetting. They had, you know, the proverbial binders of personnel, right? They had set the table uh, in some sense for a transition, but... But it was not this. This was not like you know Mike Levitt leading Romney's transition in 2012, where this thing was like a ready-made government right. on day one uh, that you were going to plug and play. It was much, much less organized, much less orderly, and sort of underlying it, Jonah, to the point you made, nobody thought he was going to win. Right. right? After, it, it's a really important to recognize that you know Access Hollywood was this inflection point where for guys like Christie, who had sort of hung on to this belief that maybe, just maybe, like we know that he says some of this crazy stuff and we know that he's out of the mainstream and, and this is all unconventional, but she's so bad and she's, su- she's such a terrible candidate. She's got all of these things working against her with the investigation, everything else that, you know, maybe he'll win. And then Access Hollywood comes a month before election day and it just sort of knocks the lights out for a lot of yeah. those people. And they say, well, you know, screw it. Oh, well. And, I, and so for a guy like Christie, who had been charged with the transition planning, I think it's understandable that for him and some of his allies who were involved in the transition planning, they sort of let off the gas a little bit. And and so people in Pence world are absolutely right that it was not nearly as organized as Christie likes to say it was, that it was mm-hmm. not just cut and paste. But, I mean, Christie had at least done kind of the requisite framework of a transition and did have a lot of the vetting paperwork organized and a lot of the people ready to at least be interviewed. So it's sort of a little bit of both. Pence's people have taken way too much credit but there is no question that, look, when Pence takes over that transition and this is a guy who is you know not just a former Republican congressman with with relationships on the hill but this is a movement guy yeah. who is really really well connected with with folks at heritage and, and heritage as we know obviously has this long running project where they attempt to basically staff an administration themselves from from the ground up right. so Pence did play this this crazy disproportionate role in staffing the administration because Trump outsourced a ton of it to him. He said, look, Mike, I trust you, you know, bring me these people. And so probably three out of every four, you know, major decisions at the cabinet, subcabinet level uh, were coming through Pence. And Pence was bringing these people in, you know, Betsy DeVos and Tom Price and others just saying, Mr. President, this is who I would pick. And Trump would say, yeah, great. He talked to him for a few minutes. This sounds good.
0: Right. All right. So let's flesh back to the actual, the big picture. I mean, I I like the insidery stuff a lot, and there's a lot of it in the book. But the grand thesis, right? Because most of this is table setting for how Trump managed to sort of perform the hostile takeover. You go back to 2008, 2010. Why don't you give me your... Because I I think I have some subtle disagreements with some of it. Your grand thesis about how we got here and what happened to the GOP and the Tea Parties before Trump arrived on the scene.
1: Yeah. So, look... Obviously, you could make an argument, and some people have, and they're not wrong, Jonah, that you could trace Trump back much farther than 2008, right? Um, you could go back 50 years if you wanted. You could certainly go back to you know, Buchanan taking on H.W. Bush.
0: There are, there are actually, just so you know, there are some students of Eric Vigellin and and Leo Strauss who would go back to the – 8th century Gnostic priest Joachim of Fior. Oh, yeah. And say all of our problems stem from him, but that's another problem. I thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, I was
1: tempted to pick up there, but, but yeah. you know, for expedience sake. Yeah. Look, I'm, but, you know, 08 is kind of where I chose to start this narrative because I think in 08, you had this really remarkable convergence of events uh, between you know John McCain winning the nomination and he's very unpopular with the conservative base for his sort of perceived betrayals of, of orthodoxy and purity you've got Bush leaving office and he's incredibly unpopular for his not you know not just the two wars and not just Katrina and Harriet Myers and and Terry Chavo and all these other polarizing things but Obviously a lot of conservatives felt like his administration had become a betrayal of small government principles, you know, Medicare part D and no child left behind and exploding debt and deficit and the economy is beginning to fall apart. And then McCain picks Palin and Palin is such a harbinger of what is to come in terms of exposing this this schism that exists, this huge gulf between the parties populist wing, your sort of blue collar, working class, culturally conservative voter, and and the upscale wing, the, the, the elitist country club, chamber of commerce, suburban Republican. And that was a real thing that I think we all knew existed, but we had no idea how intense it was. And Palin spoke to the intensity of the moment there. And then... You know, that fall, the economy really falls apart, and suddenly the the global financial system is on the verge of collapse. You've got millions of jobs being shed, especially in the manufacturing sector, and all across the country, people are starting to freak out, and then they bail out the banks. And there's this narrative that takes root basically overnight, and the seeds of it had been planted earlier, obviously, but a lot of Americans of all political stripes are suddenly looking around and thinking this is bs washington and wall street they play by one set of rules we play by a different set of rules the 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 system is rigged against us and then obama wins and obviously it's impossible to really quantify just what it meant for an African-American president and and a, sort of an unabashed progressive coming in with Democratic supermajorities in Congress and pursuing pretty forcefully this progressive agenda that they had for the country, talking about this big, sweeping structural change, when you layer all of that stuff on top of it itself in 08... You're beginning to see sort of a powder keg. And as you trace it forward into 10 and 12 and 14, these election cycles and all, not just the political stuff, Jonah, I really want to emphasize here, it's the cultural as well. I mean, we have seen in a decade's time such a dramatic makeover of the country culturally, everything from, you know, same-sex marriage to transgender bathrooms to contraception mandates. I mean, all these court cases, obviously. And... It just it became I use the term powder keg and that might sound dramatic, but it really did become this powder keg when you layer that cultural and the political and the socioeconomic displacement and it was ready to explode. And so I just try to put Trumpism in the context of all of that because there's this impulse, I think. These days, it's fashionable to believe that Trumpism sort of came out of thin air. Mm-hmm. And and that's just not true. We could see this coming. We didn't know that it was going to take the form of Trump, obviously, but we could see it building, I think, for quite some time.
0: Yeah. So, uh, look, I was, there's a lot I agree with in there. And, and some of that stuff I covered in, in my book um, in terms of the cultural changes and what that produces. And there's lots of social science that talks about how when you have particularly huge financial disruptions there's a really long tail of populism because of the loss of faith and trust in institutions and all that. And you know, my f- friend, John Podoritz, he thinks that this all began with... Um, or he floated the idea once that this all began with the Catholic Church sex abuse scandals because it was from there... I mean, that, that was sort of like one of the first dominoes in our lifetimes of faith and trust in institutions just tumbling everywhere you looked. Yep, right? Yep. So I agree with a lot of that stuff. And, and you know, my position on Trump has always been that he's not a cause of our problems, he's a symptom of them. And so I agree with you on that. But there's part of, I guess, I, part of my my minor and subtle disagreement with the sort of the narrative that you lay out is that I don't, I, I, I think the role that Obama and Democrats and the left played in their own version of trolling the right and baiting the right doesn't get enough Play, and what I mean by that is, you know, when Obama comes in, he has seventy percent approval ratings. There were a lot of conservatives in America who didn't even vote for him, who were hoping for the best for him, in part because he was such a Rorschach test when he ran. Remember, he was against gay marriage. He 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 made at least said nice things to evangelical Christians. He played to Rick Warren's church, right? And and then he gets in, and then he all of a sudden starts governing entirely. He talked about all this stuff about unity and all that. And then he gets in and he governs almost entirely as a left winger. And you can say that that was because Republicans refused to play along. But I just don't think that's the tick tock of what happened. I think that if you wanted to pick a signature moment that is sort of that lit the fuse on so much of the Obama era and now the Trump era nonsense was the stimulus Yep. where if Trump I mean, if, if Obama had merely given the Republicans like a fourth of a loaf or a third of a loaf and said, you tell me what you want rather than. You guys say you like tax cuts, so we're going to give you some tax cuts in the, in the co, and we're going to do these little games that you should like because I think they reflect what you think, but you have no say. If they hadn't completely frozen out Cantor and Boehner and those guys from the stimulus thing, though, Boehner and, 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 and Cantor and those guys would not have discovered that it was in their political interest to oppose Obama on everything. And that was a huge risk when when Obama was at 70% and the economy was doing what it was to say no on the stimulus. And and from that point forward, it was this – and imagine if the reverse had happened. Imagine if he had managed to co-opt half the Republican caucus. Then all the problems of the economy are now bipartisan. It's not the Obama economy. It's the obama Boehner economy and all that. And so I think – I think Obama really miscalculated, he misread his mandate in the beginning, and then so much of the cultural politics of the Obama era have to do with, yes, there was more racism and nativism on the Republican side than I recognized at the time, and I'm embarrassed by it, and I'm embarrassed by a lot of the birther stuff, which I always kind of mocked, but I never really took seriously as a problem. Um, So, and I agree with you on that stuff. But there was also this, you know, united elite culture in journalism and media and Hollywood and all of that, that said any objections to what Obama was doing was racist. That all of you people are just your bitter clingers and you got your Bibles and your boomsticks and your sky god and you're weird and besides, we're gonna get rid of you soon with these demographic changes and and white people aren't going to matter anymore. And then they're shocked that there's this populist backlash against that. And my only point is it takes two to tango. And the left and the Democrats' rhetoric, as we see with this absolute crap storm between the squad and Trump right now, I have every no problem criticizing what Donald Trump is saying. What he's doing is awful. But Elon Omar says awful things too. And one of the things that is so destructive about our political culture right now is that it is in, False choice. It's in both sides. It's in their incentives to be as stupid and as extreme as possible because all the incentives are on their side. So anyway, my point is, is that there is all your criticisms of the GOP in the beginning of the book, I think, are on point. I just think there's this other factor in the wings about the role that Obama and the Democrats played to goose all of this, including goosing Donald Trump's candidacy, which Obama you know admitted to doing or at least uh, one of the bros admitted to doing that. It's a lot there to digest. No,
1: no, no, no. So actually, look, I, I agree with a good chunk of what you just said. And I'm going to put you on the spot. Did you mm-hmm. did you read Chapter 2? I believe I did. So, because I really do isolate the stimulus incident as a pivot point. For, for many of the and reasons... Maybe
0: I didn't. I apologize.
1: No, no. Well, that's why I want to put you on the spot. But for many of the reasons, actually, that you just uh, laid out, um, it's really, I think, important to remember that Obama was this incredibly daunting figure Mm -hmm. in january of 2009 i mean this guy takes office with the country and the city at his feet republicans are terrified of him this is a political figure the likes of which most of them had never seen before not just the power of the rhetoric but the response of the american people they see him coming in with that 70 percent approval rating and with those democratic supermajorities and by the way I also, uh, I I talk about this in chapter two, I I tell the beginning of chapter two through the eyes of Eric Cantor who's sitting on the risers at the inauguration looking out over this sea of nearly two million people and he's wondering, is the party going to go extinct or Mm -hmm. are we screwed? And in telling that story, I sort of flash back momentarily to this meeting about two weeks before the inauguration. So the president elect is sitting down with Republican leaders uh, on the Senate side of the Capitol for this meeting to talk about stimulus planning. And there's a media scrum and Obama makes these very, you know, moderate, inclusive remarks talking about, you know, this is an American problem and the economy is really struggling and we need to come together as Americans right now and figure out some solutions to this. And all the Republicans are watching him sort of rolling their eyes like, yeah, right, like because they believe that Obama is a hardcore liberal and that he's going to steamroll them. And the cameras go away, and they go into this private meeting, and Obama sounds the exact same tone. And they have this really long, super productive meeting, and even McConnell, who has made it clear at that point, by the way, that obstructionism is their path back to power, and McConnell doesn't really make bones about it. Now, Boehner and Cantor, it's a bit of a different story on the House side, but but McConnell has made it known to his guys, look, we need to shatter the sort of bipartisan aura of this guy. That's our path back to power, because if, if he governs as a centrist, if he triumphs, angulates this guy is going to ruin the Republican Party. He, he's going to be impossible to beat in 2012, certainly. And even McConnell coming out of that meeting says to people, wow, I think he means business. I think he wants to work with us on the stimulus. And so you flash forward a couple of weeks and they are trying almost – so, so Obama is sworn in on January 20th. The, the, the bill passed the House eight days later. And so urgency was really the catchword uh, inside the beltway at, at that point, obviously, because the economy is in real trouble. And what was so surprising, Jonah, about that, that that stimulus showdown was, well, a couple of things. First, there were nearly 40 House Republicans at that point whose districts had been carried by Obama. Right. So these guys were especially scared, right? They had every reason to want to cooperate with the administration. And Cantor knows this. Boehner knows this. And they fully expect that they're going to lose a few dozen votes on this, maybe more, right? And so... There's a little bit of three-dimensional chess, a little bit of gamesmanship happening on you know what suggestions they have for Obama, what suggestions they don't. They know that infrastructure, for example, is something that a lot of their members would respond to, and they're not quite sure what Obama's approach is going to be. Well, as it turns out, Obama's approach is largely, not entirely, but largely to sort of contract out a lot of the, 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 the details here to Pelosi. Now... I mentioned this and it's important because Pelosi had basically watched for the last eight years as the Republicans in Congress had run roughshod over the Democrats and there had been no bipartisanship really under George W. Bush and with Republican leaders in Congress. And so Pelosi gave this quote at the time to the Washington Post uh, right around the day of the inauguration where they asked her, Are, you know, shouldn't you be writing this bill with the Republicans? And she basically says, no, we won the election. We're going to write the bill. And. Republicans heard her say that, and that quote blew up at the time, and they thought, yeah, but we just had this meeting with Obama. She's not speaking for him. And then they have this meeting with Obama a couple days later, and I know I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, but it's, this stuff is really historically important. No, I
0: agree entirely. Yeah. Because
1: Obama then in this meeting with Cantor, Cantor's handing out these, these, these bullet points of what Republicans want to see in the bill, and he and Obama get in this very testy exchange. And Obama basically says to him at one point, look, Eric, elections have consequences, and I won, right? We're going we're to write this bill. And that was a breaking point. I've talked with people in the White House, David Axelrod and others about this, and they will all sort of say, look, that probably came off more hostile than it meant to. And obviously, Obama's right. Like, he did win the election, just like Trump won the election. You know, you do have the right to, to, to take the wheel on these things. But Pelosi... And Harry Reid and other Democrats in Congress, I think they sort of took advantage of a new president who hadn't been in Washington very long himself, by the way, and they sort of convinced him, Listen, screw these people. You don't need to play footsies with them. We need to pass a bill and we need to pass it quickly. They're gonna they're gonna screw around, they're gonna play games with you. Do not Give in to them. Let's just pass our bill. And I think Obama listened to them and it was a huge, huge mistake because instead of rushing this bill to the House floor, which by the way, it wasn't a very good bill, it was really sloppily put together. Instead of rushing that bill to the floor in eight days and getting zero Republican votes, if Obama had sat down with Boehner, who is the ultimate deal maker, and they had put their heads together for three or four weeks on this, I guarantee they could have gotten sixty or seventy Republicans for that bill. Uh, there's and the no, last. There's the no whole last decade would be completely. Different. It might have looked very, very, very. Because, I mean, the whole. You were always going to have that obstructionism to Obama in some quarters of the party. No of question. course, of course, no question.
0: But you could no longer get. You could no longer have the talking point. It's the Obama economy. The, the, yes. The it's the. Uh, The Obama recovery is not here, all that kind of stuff, because the Republicans would have had buy in. But the reason one of the reasons why I think it's historically really important, and this is a point I belabor a lot on here, I was just talking to A.B. Stoddard about it last week. One of the reasons our political system is so cocked up is that we basically have fallen over backward into wanting to live in a parliamentary system where you elect a party, that party then has complete power to do whatever it wants so long as it has enough seats. And that the stimulus, the the, the, the stimulus thing in, in the beginning of the Obama administration, Nancy Pelosi's and Harry Reid's argument was, we are the majority party, therefore whatever we say goes. And that's what the Republicans did under Trump when he first came in. The problem is that's not actually how the system is set up, right? We don't live in a parliamentary system. And when you have the voters with this expectation that if I voted for a party and that party wins, that party gets everything, and then they can't deliver – you end up with this sense, oh my gosh, the system's rigged. It is rigged. It's called the Constitution. And if you actually work with how the Constitution is supposed to work, you could actually get more stuff done. And not to mention, you also wind up with bad laws
1: a right. lot of the time, right. right? Because if you don't have buy-in f- from, from different parties, different constituencies, there's, you know, we have seen some of the really, really worst legislation in the country over the years passed under one-party rule, right. passed with supermajorities. And... It seems as though one party never learns from the other. It's, right. it's really remarkable. Because
0: it's they want the tit for tat thing yes. rather than more than anything. Else. Absolutely. So the other point, just on your major thesis thing and then we can move on, I think you're absolutely right about the disconnect between the sort of Club for Growth, Wall Street Journal editorial page, let's just keep running Reagan's 1982 playbook over and over again stuff, which I've talked about a lot on this podcast. I'm not a reformicon, but I'm reformicon curious. And um <laughs> I think you're absolutely right about that disconnect between the populist sort of Palin forces and the elite club for growth kind of crowd. And I was writing. I'm one of those guys who was criticizing George W. Bush for being a big spender, for I never liked compassionate conservatism and all that kind of stuff. I'm more sympathetic to it now in retrospect because I think it might have... Fix some of the problems if we by catching them earlier in the process, but that's a different argument. But I was a you know I was a critic of expanding the government, new cabinet agencies, all that stuff that 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 Bush did, and so in that way I kind of echoed the rhetoric of a lot of Tea Party people and all of that kind of stuff. the The thing I can't square in your analysis necessarily is that the people, the Tea Party critique, the Club for Growth t- critique that fueled this sense of disappointment in the Bush administration, whatever the merits of it are, none of those people. Now, all those people who became, you you say somewhere in the book that the Tea Party became Make America Great Again or something like that. Yeah, well, Trump said that to me, yes. And the thing is, the people who believed in limited government and were disappointed in Bush for the bailouts and all of the rest, Trump, by his own confession, is worse on all... All of those kinds of issues. He is he's not even a conservative. I mean, he says, I'm a nationalist, not a conservative. He's hes for economic patriotism. He's for bailing out. He's for picking winners and losers. He's totally against touching entitlements of any kind. hes um, I know he's spewing word salad this week about the deficit, but, you know, he doesn't have a problem with deficit spending. He doesn't have a problem with manipulating the Fed. Those are not Tea Party critiques. And yet the, those Tea Party people now love him. What—what What is the connective tissue there in your mind? Culture.
1: Culture. A hundred percent. And to the point you're making, Jonah, it's a really important one. If you track down all of these Republicans who won in 2010 running on this platform that was pretty narrowly fiscal, uh, they, you know, Obama's bankrupting the country. Bush started bankrupting the country. I mean, a lot of these folks who were running in 10, to your point. They were running as much against George W. Bush as they were against Barack Obama. We're going to be a new breed of Republicans. We're going to be conservatives first, Republicans second. We're not going to bow to the system. And they're talking about, you know, debt and deficit. They're talking about spending being out of control. I mean, TEA, taxed enough already, right? Tea Party. Um, When you went to those rallies, and I went to a ton of them to cover them, that, that was the cry of the day. And when you look back at a lot of those elected officials who came in in 2010... And you listen to their rhetoric then, and you look at their voting records in the Obama era, and then you contrast them with their voting records now, those of them who are still around. And there's a lot of them. There are still easily four or five dozen of them in Congress, both in the House and Senate. It's a 180. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, this is why I've gotten teased over the years because I, Justin Amash and I go back a bit. I've, I covered him in the State House in Lansing, Michigan when I was there and he was a rep. And then when he came to Congress, I had moved out to D.C. And so I've known him for a little while. And I get, I've gotten teased over the years because I've always had this sort of infatuation with Amash. And I've tried to explain to people, look. It's because anybody who sounds the exact same during the Obama presidency as they do during the Trump presidency is an inherently fascinating, compelling political figure to me, and there just aren't that many of them. I mean, welcome we, to the remnant. Yeah, right. I <laughs> that's was. Ju- why, that's why this podcast. I was just going to say. Yeah, I just that could be your new lead-in, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, Jonah Goldberg and Justin Amash, right? You guys should do a <laughs> podcast together. But but we're trying. There are so few of these people who actually remained tethered to their. Supposed principles. Yeah. When the when 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 the government changed hands, uh, to your point a minute ago about you know everything is different when Republicans have it, everything is different when Democrats have it. It just depends on 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 who's in control. And so I think the underlying issue, and there are some people in the book who speak to this, and give them credit for candor. When we look back on the Tea Party now, I think it was far more animated if not entirely animated, by a sense of lost culture, by a sense of displacement, people looking around. And and look, obviously, there are are, are elements of racism and, and xenophobia involved in this, no question. I don't know that that's all of it. I certainly don't think it's all of it, but I do think that it's a, a significant contributing factor. But I also think when, when you have unemployment in the teens and... I have this stat in the book, Jonah, where you know, between uh, an 18-month period spanning the end of the Bush presidency and the beginning of the Obama presidency, you had 15% of the entire U.S. manufacturing workforce vanished, 15% in 18 months. And you think about the millions of people across the country affected by that. And you have people waking up. Suddenly, looking around and feeling like this is not my country anymore, a- and there is an enormous amount of economic and, and, and cultural angst uh, churning below the political surface and so they 're looking for something to tie that to some proxy for that and it 's oh oh Obama, this guy is a he's a crazy big spender he 's got you know these big government plans for health care and everything else, and they 're going to come into our bank accounts and into our bedrooms and tell us how to live our lives and there 's this backlash but It's not really rooted in principles of small government, I don't think. And I think Trump is right in many respects when he – he and I were talking about this for the book and he said, look, the Tea Party – is still here. It's just called Make America Great Again. And and he sort of put a finger on that that cultural angst, that populist fervor that was that was sort of simmer, simmering below the surface that was widely identified as relating to policy matters when in fact it was something much more visceral.
0: Yeah, so I, I'm wrestling with this. I mean I, I really am because I, I, I I'm a longtime opponent of populism. I, I was writing pieces against populism in the early 2000s and ever since and then all of a sudden when Trump comes along people are like why are you suddenly against populism I was like no no I don't like populism but I liked the Tea Parties and because I thought that the Tea Parties were the one kind of populist movement I mean there were definitely cranks and weirdos and all sorts of people as there are whenever there is a new political opportunity with passion and momentum around it I remember the Reform Party where it was like it was like when they did that casting call for villains in blazing saddles and just like everybody shows up Um, but uh, but if you're going to have a populist movement have one that says back to basics live within our means get back to the constitution all that kind of stuff and I think one of the things which bothers a lot of progressives when I point this out uh, that was I thought very telling about the Tea Party movement is that two of its biggest heroes were Ben Carson and Herman Cain two black guys because a lot of those guys Really resented being told that they were racist just because they wanted, they were against deficit spending and they were against, you know, socialism and all of these various things. And this was a way to sort of wear their non racism on their sleeve by supporting these guys. And so part of my argument about why the Tea Party's turned into Make America Great Again is that they were called racist anyway. And they were like, and so if you read Mike Anton, the guy from the Flight 93 election thing, part of his spiel that he went back and forth with me about was that, you know, uh, the old classical liberal notion of judging people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin, that's dead. The left killed it, so we needed identity politics of our own. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the failure and the incredible condescension from the left and from Obama and from the media that painted these guys as nothing but sort of Klansmen without the sheets that caused them to say, screw it. If if we're going to be called racist anyway, let's actually have a real identity politics. Now, I'm not saying they all became racist, but they just, they stopped caring about being called racist, which we're seeing a lot of that this week. And they were more interested and more sympathetic to white identity politics and all this kind of stuff. Whereas before they were sort of dogmatically told, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a free society. We're not talking about, you know, uh, we're not talking about you know, sort of, you can't beat them, join them identity politics. But the way that, and also, let's be blunt, part of the reason why the Tea Party's failed is the enormous number of shysters and grifters and opportunists seized on it with mailing lists and BS and and took advantage of a lot of passionate people who didn't, didn't have political sophistication. Um, so there are a lot of reasons for its failure, but I think that transformation is an important part of it. I don't think in 20... When did the Tea Party start, 2010? No, 2009? Oh, oh nine, yeah. yeah. I don't think Trump could have hijacked that movement then. He had to wait for that movement to have become spent of its intellectual pretensions and its first principles and for those guys to sort of be exhausted with that kind of thing and then say, okay, forget all that stuff about making good arguments. Forget all that stuff about the Constitution. You just want to win. We don't win anymore. I'm the guy who's going to win. I'm going to win it for you. I don't think that argument works on them prior to losing in 2012 prior to the the Tea Party failure and the demonization and all of that? Maybe not. I,
1: you know, that's tricky, obviously. It's impossible to, to know. I do disagree, I think, to an extent on, on the role of, of race and identity politics in animating all of this. Because to your point about, you know, Ben Carson and Herman Cain, and, and you can go back to Alan Keyes and others. Michael Steele had said this. Who is is crazy. Just. Yeah, 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 for the record. But Michael Steele, the, the uh, former chairman of the RNC, who, of course, was elected right after Barack Obama came into office because a lot of Republicans looked around and said, hey, there's a black president. We need a black party chairman. It was right. basically that simple. And he acknowledges that in, in so many ways. And Michael Steele is a really talented guy in his own right and had paid his dues in the party. But he understood that a lot of people were suddenly looking to him for that reason. And, and Steele said this to me uh, when we were having lunch talking about the book. He said, you know, white conservatives love them a black Republican. And that's always been the case for some of the reasons that, that, that you were articulating, Jonah. But I do think to that point and sort of a natural extension of that point is when you go back to 2009 and to 2010 and, and that sort of uh, explosion of tea party energy all across the country, tens of thousands, if not maybe hundreds of thousands of voters uh, turning out activists, grassroots folks all across the country, carrying the don't tread on me flags and screaming about fiscal stuff. And you asked a minute ago, well, yeah, but it wasn't really fiscal, right? Like we know that now. And I have a really hard time separating that, understanding that it wasn't fiscal, that it wasn't really tied to this narrow set of, of principally held positions. I have a hard time separating that from what we see today. And yep. and a Not big fair. chunk of supporters at the president's rally chanting, send her back, yeah, ab- about, a, about a black woman, a refugee who came from Africa, who is a duly elected federal official. And I don't believe that All Trump supporters are racist, not even close. I know tons of Trump supporters, friends and family members. I come from a very Trumpy part of the country. I understand that some of what you're saying is true, that people probably got, some people probably got so sick of being called racists and painted with, you know, really lazily and and in a really militant way with that that brush of, of being racially resentful that it did in this sort of strange backward way almost open them up to identity politics in a way that maybe they wouldn't have been susceptible to previously mm. but I also, definitely think that you had a huge undercurrent of racial animus in the Tea Party. I, uh, you know, I I, th- I can't really dispute that. I mean,
0: we could, all I could do is argue with you about the percentages.
1: Yeah. Oh, know? sure. Exactly. And that's, that's- right. And and that's a that's an argument that nobody would ever would ever win, and frankly, would, no sane person would want to have. But I do think that yeah, putting two and two together and sort of connecting those dots, you can see where it was going. And and Trump, what he did was basically give some people permission to just sort of, you know, tear off the veil and and say, all right, well, it's out in the open
0: now. Well, that's so before when I said I think that Trump didn't cause our problems, he's a symptom of them. He's also a sufficiently severe symptom that he's making a lot of those problems worse. No question. Which is where we are now. Okay, so some rapid fire questions. I don't know rapid fire. It's not, I'm not going to do a A lightning round? Not Not a lightning round. I just, I should stop monologuing and then saying, respond to that, which brings me to the first question. So one of the reasons why I can't do what you do, I talk to Steve Hayes about this all the time. I'm not a reporter, right? I mean, I've done reporting, but most of the reporting I've done is of the Matt Labash, PJ O'Rourke. Let's put Jonah in some funny place or some weird place and have him write weird observational stuff about right. it, and maybe he'll even talk to some humans. That's about the fullest extent of my reporting. Doesn't mean I don't talk to politicians and all the rest, and but I'm I'm not a political reporter, and I've never tried to be one. One of the reasons why I'm not is I have a really hard time listening to people I disagree with and not saying, what the hell are you talking about or, you know, you're wrong or whatever. And I used to – in my early days – I used to think it was a sign of my superior character that I was incapable of doing this. And now I've gotten to know too many reporters who are actually really decent people. And I realize <laughs> that I'm just wired differently, right? You know, like Byron York can talk to people. You can talk to Al Sharpton. And Al Sharpton could be saying stuff that would enrage me. And he'll go, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. I can't do that. Do you have a... Do you struggle with this at all? I mean, you've never been an opinion guy, Right. But sometimes you must talk to people who you know are spewing you a line of BS, and you just got to say, "Oh, I hadn't seen it that way." I mean,
1: yeah. So, and that's the the last part of what you said is the important part. It's the BS, right? So, I would draw a distinction between yeah, I can
0: stand being lied to,
1: right? Right, right. And so that's so as matters of policy and even opinion go, and, and look, I'm not an ideological guy at all. Uh, I remember when I sat down with Rich Lowry uh, to talk about coming to National Review. And it was because my previous employer, the National Journal, had sort of imploded and I was let out of my contract there right in the middle of the election cycle. And I had some different opportunities, but I was sort of drawn to National Review for one big reason because of Eliana Johnson, who's a friend. And she said, you know, we could – if we teamed up, we could just kill it. We could do some great reporting here. And I remember sitting down with Rich at this little barbecue joint in New York and – he said, you know, come on, I, I know that you've got to have an ideological leaning one way or the other. And I said, not really, man. Like, I've got some opinions on certain things, obviously, but I don't filter things through any kind of a worldview and i think that does give me an advantage as a reporter because most reporters who say that are full of shit and mm. and 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 look i'd be the first person to recognize that there is inherent bias in the media that's very obvious for anybody who's ever worked in a newsroom and i've worked in a bunch of them but it's not like i listen to a super conservative republican or a super progressive democrat defending their policy positions or advocating some bill that they're sponsoring and want to call them out on it i might think it's you know silly or whatever but that's not my job it's a little bit different, though, when you're sitting with any number of these elected officials or candidates for office and you know that they're just lying to you and, and, and you know that they're just turning on the fog machine and trying to spin you in circles. And that is – that does enrage me and it does often provoke a response that people don't like. And I've gotten to a point in my career, Jonah, where I'm pretty comfortable. Like I used to be really, really um, – reverent and really respectful of people in office, especially because you're like, oh, these are elected officials. And then the more time you spend with them, you realize A, that you're flesh and blood like us, B that they work for us. And C that so many of them are intellectually dishonest <laughs> that that they deserve our scorn. They right. they deserve to be put on the hot seat. So I've gotten much more comfortable in my own skin as a journalist over the years just basically saying, yeah, what you just said to me is not true, and and you know it. So why don't we back up the tape and, and, and let me press you on one or two things here. And if you want to give me an honest response, then we can have an honest conversation. But if you're just going to keep talking out of both sides of your mouth here and expecting me not to pick up on it, then we're wasting our time spinning our wheels here. So, yes, that part of it does, does piss me off. But by and large, uh, I try – I really do try to be respectful – of politicians and try to put myself in their shoes. And I had to do a lot of that in this book because obviously, as you know, you have an awful lot of people who have done a 180 on Trump who have done this total evolution. I I think somebody, maybe it was the post book critic who, when he was writing the review, he said, you know, that I have the before and after pictures of all these Republicans, which is a good way of putting it. And it's just to say that I really did try, whether it's with Paul Ryan or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or any number of these other people, whether they think I was fair to them or not, I really did try to be fair by putting readers in their shoes because we're living through this totally unprecedented period
0: and there was no blueprint for any of these guys. Okay. So that raises the second question I have. In my experience, there are fewer greater disconnects in politics and the way that politics is covered than between what Republican... Elected officials and cabinet members and the rest say when the camera's on or when the recorder is on and when it's off. And I've – now, obviously, there's some filter bias here. Some of the people who truly think that Comrade Trump is the greatest leader we've ever seen don't want to talk to me, right? right? And, uh, but they are the minority. But yeah. But my point is, is that I have not run into a senator or a congressman or anybody of that kind of stature who isn't – wildly more realistic about what Trump is actually about, what his capabilities are, when it's off the record. And so I, part of my question is, of the people who've done the 180, this is just, I'm, I'm just asking you to guess, how many of them are sincerely 180'd and how much of it is just pure uh Faustian bargain stuff, and therefore dishonest when they talk about how great he is? Yeah.
1: Oh, man. As a ratio, I'd say for, <laughs> you know, for every one who's done the true 180 and is, and is a real believer in Trump at this point and, and a sincere ally of his and a sincere believer that he's a good man and he's doing what's best for the country and that there's not a hateful bone in his body, et cetera, et cetera, for every one of those Republicans – Probably there are 50 who who have just made the Faustian bargain and who saw an opportunity here, and they took it. Obviously, in the news recently, Justin Amash, the aforementioned Justin Amash, uh, left the Republican Party. And I had this really fascinating interview with him for the book. And this is obviously well before he left the GOP and, and, and called for the president's impeachment and the rest. And Amash, at that point, nobody knew, but he had stopped attending Freedom Caucus meetings, and Justin Amash had helped to found the House Freedom Caucus, and some of his closest friends in Congress were there. And Amash was telling me, he said, it's really remarkable, because I watched these guys, my friends, many of whom came in, in my class in 2010 or, or thereabouts, and, and we were the true believers. We were the independent thinkers. We were the people who weren't the knee-jerk partisans around here. We were going to do what was right, even if it was bucking our party's leadership, which they did often. And now I watch these guys, and they're the most knee-jerk partisan. They're the most reflexively partisan. And not only that, but they'll go on Fox News, or they'll go on talk radio, or they'll go back to their districts and talk to their constituents at a town hall, and they will say these glowing things about Trump. And they will sing his praises, and they will tell everyone that he's making America great again. And then when we have our private conversations in meetings or go out to dinner, have a drink, whatever, they will sort of unload on him. And, And they're very... Very realistic, to put it generously, Mm -hmm. and that was your word, very realistic about who this guy is and Mm -hmm. what he represents and, and sort of the threat that it poses to conservatism, if not to the party and to the country. And Amash said, but they'll go on Fox News, and this was his quote, he said, they'll go on Fox News and lie through their teeth about the president and then come off the set and say something completely different and Amash said to me and I just don't know how to process that mm-hmm. he said I can't understand it it's, it's something that he was really really struggling with this Amash is whatever for whatever anybody thinks about the guy he's very sincere mm-hmm. and he's you know a little bit idealistic and you can just see it in his face like he's He's losing sleep over this and he doesn't know what to make of all of his friends. And, you know, whether it's Jim Jordan or Mark Meadows or some of these other guys who were in the Freedom Caucus, I remember I paint this portrait in the book, Jonah, the day that it was the most thrown in the the starkest possible relief for me was the day after Helsinki and the Freedom Caucus every month. They host this forum on Capitol Hill. The Heritage Foundation sponsors it. It's called Conversations with Conservatives, and there are usually about a dozen of them or maybe 15 of them. And they show up, and they rent out a committee hearing room, and they sit up at the dais, and they take questions from reporters for about an hour. And it just so happened that they planned one of these for the day after the Helsinki summit in which President Trump basically bowed to Putin and said that he took the word of Putin over the word of the American intelligence community. And I was there for that day because I said this is a breaking point if ever there was one, right, that these guys know what he just did is crazy and beyond the pale and indefensible. And I want to see how they react to it. Well, sure enough, up and down the line, all 12 of them or however many of them were there that day, including Jordan and Meadows, guys who I've covered for a long time and guys who I know beyond a shadow of a doubt are horrified by some of the things that Trump says and does. And guys who were terribly uneasy with his political rise in the first place. In fact, Meadows told friends before the convention that, he didn't want to go to Cleveland and cast a vote because he was a delegate. He didn't want to go cast a vote because he was afraid he would have to tell his grandkids about it one day. He told mm-hmm. his friends this. So Meadows says a lot of things to a lot of people. Yes, he <laughs> does. So fast forward to Helsinki. And these guys, up and down the dais, they spend... 45 minutes just defending everything Trump said. And they said, it's you guys in the media. You're, you're spitting this out, out of control. It was Obama's fault that we're in this position in the first place. It was Hillary Clinton with the reset. They're blaming everybody else. Trump didn't say or do anything wrong. And I raised my hand and I said, look, guys, you know me. I've, I've covered you for a lot of years. I said, I just want to give you one last chance here. Put this on the record. Because you know that the headlines coming out of today are going to be, you know, freedom caucus defends Trump's Helsinki performance. Are there Any of you up there that are uneasy with this at all? And they all kind of looked around and only one guy, Warren Davidson from Ohio, he raised his hand, he said, Look, I don't think yesterday was the president's finest hour, but you know we appreciate all these other things he's doing. (laughs) There was something really interesting about that day, Jonah. Justin Amash was not there, and he usually is. Mark Sanford was not there, and he usually is. Raul Labrador from Idaho was not there, and he usually is. These are three guys who are sort of core members of the Freedom Caucus, sort Mm -hmm. of conscious of the conservative movement guys up on Capitol Hill. And they didn't go because they would not subject themselves to that routine that their colleagues were putting themselves through. Raul Labrador is gone. Because he ran for governor and Trump wouldn't endorse him because Mm -hmm. he wasn't Trumpy enough. Mark Sanford's gone. Trump worked against him in his primary because Sanford was an outspoken critic. And Amash has now left the Republican Party. And you use that as just sort of a microcosm of Trump's takeover of the GOP and how the dissenters have been squashed. And it paints a pretty startling picture of where the party is today.
0: Yeah. No, I agree with that. I agree with that entirely. And that thing that you were quoting Amash about, about lying on TV and then telling the truth in the green room. I have a standard riff which Jack has heard 10,000 times now. I have a standard riff which Jack has heard 10,000 times now. I have a standard riff which Jack has heard 10,000 times now. About one of the like one of the reasons why I wanted to start this new media thing with with Steve Hayes is that I was just so stunned in 2016, 2015 and 2016 how many journalists People who I thought had the exact same job description as me, which is, you know, I'm an opinion journalist. My job is to tell the truth as I see it. That's it. I do other things. I write books. I do, you know, whatever. But how many people would, who had, I thought, the same basic job description as me would go on TV and say, Trump is a passionate constitutionalist. Trump is this. Trump is that. Trump is a man of great character and all these kinds of things. And then come off camera and be like, I can't believe I have to defend this guy. And I was like, you don't. That's yes, not your you job, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> and so part of my argument is that one of the reasons why, and I, we don't want to have to belabor this. My wife will kill me. But one of the things that's corrupted a big chunk of the conservative media complex and think tank universe, I think AEI has been remarkably immune to a lot of this and Cato, too, because it was always sort of half out, is that a lot of people before, without even realizing it, had assumed the role of being, of doing the job of the parties, right? So like the NRA does more voter organization than the RNC does in a lot of places. And Planned Parenthood is more a messaging thing than a lot of the DNC. And a lot of supposedly conservative journalists and opinion people and pundits, whatever, at the end of the day are really party people. And what Trump did was force people to choose between being the conservative writer or thinker or author or whatever the other thing was, and a party person, and an enormous number of people in talk radio, enormous number of people. I, I think National Review held a pretty admirable line on this, but that's a good example. So the against Trump thing, we can co- sort of close out on this. So we sandbagged you when we didn't tell you about the against <laughs> Trump thing. When that came out, I was stunned by how many... Like, I understand people didn't agree with it, if that's fine, think rich has retroactive regrets about some of it it was not a never trump issue that term didn't exist yet it was an against trump we were basically endorsing the field against trump and when that came out i pundit after pundit fox news host after fox news host talk radio people would come out and say who does national review think it is to tell republicans how to vote it's like what wait what what am I taking crazy pills? That's what we do. <laughs> you know, we, it's literally a job description yeah, for you like, for you guys. Even yeah. endorsing people and telling people, you know, that's that's what National Review was. Yeah. You know, and, and shaping public opinion. Yeah, and making arguments about politicians and politics and all the rest. And and I remember Rush, at some point under pressure to sort of bend to the the Trumpiness, started saying, "Look, I never told people how to vote. I never told people, you know, I was never really a conservative. You know, that's not me. You know, and." and that transformation of people or that re- that sort of die marker on the media industrial complex of the right was incredibly eye-opening to me. And I think that stuff with Amash is sort of the analog to it on the Hill. It turns out that even though the parties are incredibly weak, there are a lot of people at the end of the day are more party people than ideas people or movement people and all the rest. No doubt.
1: Although I would differ ever so slightly just in the terminology because I don't know that it's party people. I think it's tribal people. Yeah, fair. Um. Because, look, you know, Trump's not a – one of the fascinating things – Yes. Yeah. Yes. Team, tribe, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the really, really interesting things, Jonah, we were talking about institutions earlier and how the Catholic Church, as an example, but, you know, organized religion on the whole, public education, even the military has taken a little bit of a dip in recent years. We've seen this across the board that, that there has been enormous loss in faith and confidence in American institutions, certainly in the media, some of which is warranted. An institution we don't think a lot about is political parties Mm -hmm. because they are institutions. And for as much as people may hate to hear this, having strong political parties is actually a very good thing for democracy. There's no way that Donald Trump takes over a strong Republican Party. He just doesn't. Um, And look, think about it this way. Who were the two candidates in the entire 2016 election cycle? who energized their party's bases the most. It was Donald Trump on the Republican side and Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side. Well, what do they have in common? Neither of them ever belonged to that party to begin with, right? And so you've seen this deinstitutionalization infect politics in a really startling way. And I think that obviously, Trump hijacked the Republican Party, but the Republican Party was ready to be hijacked. Absolutely. Let me make one other point, because you got to it with the Against Trump issue, and I'm not picking on this person in particular. It's just a really good example, and he and I have had a fine working relationship, professional relationship over the years, but Brent Bozell wrote one of those pieces in the Against Trump issue. Mm -hmm. Now, for listeners who may not know, Brent Bozell is a longtime conservative movement leader, and he runs this big organization called the Media Research Center, which essentially makes it its Aim to ferret out uh, bias in the liberal media and highlight examples of it, and, and they do it, you know, very effectively, if not somewhat disingenuously at times. Brent Bazell wrote this piece in the Against Trump issue of National Review that was as scathing as any of them, mm-hmm. and he said and he called Trump the greatest charlatan he'd ever seen in American politics. And on a Fox News appearance, right around that time, he said, you know, God save us if this man becomes our president, right? And he really sounded off on Trump. Bozell was as outspoken as any conservative I had ever met in the 2016 election cycle about the dangers of Trumpism. And then he wins the nomination. And you fast forward to Cleveland, Ohio in the summer of 2016, when Donald Trump is about to become the Republican nominee. And I got off my plane and I got in a cab to go to the airport and I see these billboards all over Cleveland, and they are bright white with black lettering, and it says, don't believe the liberal media. (laughs) And they're sponsored by the Media Research Center. And Brent Bozell spent the duration of the election cycle telling Americans that the media was in the tank working against Trump, telling all these lies about Trump. And I've had a lot of conversations with Brent about this because it's just absolutely head spinning for me it's just disorienting to try and get my head around this notion that you were highlighting all of these inconsistencies with Trump you were calling him out for being a liar you were you were calling him a charlatan because what he was saying and doing did not align with reality in so many cases. And that is also the job of a journalist. That is the job of a reporter to point out when something is not true, when something is not factually accurate. How then do you turn on a dime and begin attacking the media for highlighting so much of the same thing that you were highlighting? And look, Brent wouldn't say this himself, but I'm going to go ahead and say it for him. The really simple answer to that question is it's tribalism. hmm you realize really quickly, most of these guys, whether it's Brent Bazell or it's Paul Ryan, you realize pretty quickly that it's something of a binary, right? You can either be with Trump and in so doing, you can have influence, which Bazell has had. He's been to the White House a bunch of times. He's had Steve Bannon's ear. He's had other uh, ears in the West Wing. Paul Ryan certainly kept his influence. He basically shaped the entire legislative agenda for a re- unified Republican government. You can have that influence if you're... Within the tribe, if you keep your standing in the tribe, but if you're on the outside of the tribe, like you are, no pun intended, (laughs) then you're not going to have that influence. And obviously, for the overwhelming majority of Republicans, they are tribal people, as you said, are party people, team people, however you want to think about it. They ultimately identify more. Justin Amash had this great quote. You know, I don't mean to name drop the guy a million times. Which, by the way, I hope you're going to have him on because the he, invitation is out. He will be a good guest for you. Yeah. But Amash said this other great thing to me. He said, "He said, Tim, these guys talking about the Freedom Caucus. He said these guys believe in a cosmic battle between the left and the right, and they believe that any criticism that you register of Donald Trump is just helping the left and." Because of that, once you've convinced yourself of that, they are unwilling publicly to ever say anything that they believe will help the left. And that's how I think most people in Washington operate, whether they're on the left or on the right, they are unwilling to break from their tribe because they ultimately think it helps the other tribe.
0: Yeah. No, I I think that's the, the macro thing. And then the micro thing is just that Trump himself has defined membership in the tribe so narrowly to... Say wonderful things about me, and never criticize me, and criticize my enemies. And it doesn't matter about policy; it doesn't matter about any of that. I remember all Jeff Flake and Corker—they all got sent packing, even though they voted with the "quote unquote" Trump agenda down the line. Ninety-five percent of the time, yeah. Yeah. It's it's all about psychic reward for the cult of personality,
1: instant gratification.
0: Anyway, Tim Alberta, thanks so much for coming on. Everybody, you should get the book. It's American Carnage on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. Tim. Thanks, Jonah. Great to have it's you It's a lot of fun, man. All right. So uh, Tim has left the building. He's going off on his more of a whirlwind tour. Um, I want some credit for not, even though he almost was like baiting me to get back into my um, decline of the party's stuff. I only did it a little bit.
2: Yeah, you still went there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, what'd
2: you think of it, Jack? Why don't I just... So, have you read the Iliad or the Odyssey?
0: Uh not really. Pieces of them, sure. You're. you're I'm a philistine. Okay, yeah. Fine, whatever. But it, so those those works were
2: transmitted orally for centuries before they were written down. And one of the tricks to doing that was that there were massive chunks of them, and you'll see this if you read the text. In most translations, massive chunks of them were repeated. So, like the way that the the sun rises at dawn is always the same description, and this was this was for the 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 oral storytellers, so that they, it was like a sort of memory um, memory sort of for them to yeah. be like, okay, uh, so what what happens next? Oh, right, it's it's morning. Dawn spread her rosy fingers. So you need to just like say that once let me record it and then <laughs> i'll just like insert party spiel here you can just say that and i'll just throw that in
0: that's fair i mean uh bill crystal used to say back when he was not unpersoned um that for politicians the trick was you had to say your talking point you had to say your line until the point of where it nearly caused you to be nauseous before it actually broke through with the public oh uh, so that's
2: kind of how um it's how the director of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, produced good acting from William Shatner. Just, like, made him do an endless number of takes until he got so bored that he, like, was just responding to commands
0: and cues well, um, rather like, than
2: trying to do his acting
0: style. Like monkeys on type, banging on typewriters?
2: Yeah. But or no, not quite like that, because that's, that's that means it's a product of random circumstance. This is just like getting someone to the point where
0: he's willing to submit to your your whims. Um... So speaking of uh, getting people to submit to whims, we have a long tradition of, of abusing interns for an entire summer or season and then at the end of it. But we have today someone who's often in studio but never allowed to speak, Audrey Falberg of the University of Virginia and from Virginia itself, Cradle of Presidents.
3: Yes, from McLean.
0: And this is your last day as an intern. No,
3: next, next Friday.
0: Okay, but this is the last day where I'm doing a podcast and you're in my intern. Yes. Okay, that's the right. last remnant of her internship. That's right, and um, and I'm leaving town next week, so we're like skipping. Yeah, I don't, I don't really skip. Um,
2: skipping town is a phrase. Come it on, is,
0: it is a phrase. And so we wanted to revive this this tradition and have give you a chance and sort of do a brief exit interview technically you're my intern at the american enterprise institute right not you're not the remnant podcast intern the one day when our empire grows maybe we'll have such a thing and uh how have you liked your time at basically let's be honest mostly working for jack but uh uh how's it gone this, so far this summer
3: It's been great. I mean, I love AEI. I was here last summer for a summer honors program. I took a class with John Yu. Um, I've loved AEI for a while. I've obviously loved your work for a while.
0: (laughs) We'll get Um, you the best doctors.
3: Yeah. Funny story. The first time I heard your name was when I was in a used bookstore and I saw liberal fascism and the uh, cover really grabbed me so (laughs) ever since then i've been reading your columns um yeah it's been a really great time doing a lot of fun research for columns doing a lot of really random tasks um i've learned a lot made a lot of really great friends with other interns and i really enjoyed my time
0: uh what has so first of all john you good guy i've spent a lot of time at blackjack tables with john (laughs) you uh he uh uh, you know, this is the, these are the little details in color that I think people tune into the remnant for sometimes. And, uh,
2: so when's Matt Labash going to write uh, at the blackjack table with
0: John Yu? He should, but the thing is, the thing about John Yu is that he's among the most disciplined human beings I've ever met, and he actually just loves it for the game and never bets more than the table minimum. Oh, he just does it for the math, um, <laughs> which is that is
2: something that has never motivated me to do anything.
0: Yeah and uh and he's like really fast, oh oh, he took a card. Oh, I would that's interesting that's inter- and then, like he just
2: gets into it, so he's like he he's like the he's constantly he's learning, he's updating his his algorithms. he's just trying to get more plays going, like those computers
0: that play go against humans. that's right until he can, until John Yu is finally self-aware <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh pray, so, that like, day never comes when you go back to the UVA and people ask you about your time in Washington. What are you going to tell them was the most surprising or in most interesting things that you've seen this summer? doesn't have to have anything to do with me. Uh, that would be fine if it didn't. Or me. Uh, it would be great if it had to do with Jack. Uh, but, you know, whatever.
3: Um, I think that it's been really amazing meeting all these incredible people who have been on the podcast. Just being surrounded by – I mean – I liked my friend's joke that I'm in the hallway of Jonah Goldberg, so all the other interns are in a kind of mosh pit, but I'm kind of alone in this little alcove, which is cool because my office is right in front of Yuval Levin, uh, which is really crazy. And obviously, you share. But it's an hard to office.
0: concentrate with all the cursing coming in. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> <a> filthy mouth.
3: <laughs> and you share an office with Charles Murray, and it's just kind of crazy seeing these people walk in the hallways, so being surrounded by so many bright minds. Um, but I think that the most refreshing thing about AEI has been kind of being surrounded by people who are willing to listen to what I have to say. I mean, obviously, UVA is a public school, um, you know, pretty balanced, but obviously left-leaning. And, you know, sometimes as I I write for the Cavalier Daily, which is our um, newspaper at UVA, I'm an opinion writer there, and a lot of my articles are, I guess, right of center. And so a lot of people won't even read past the headline, which is kind of frustrating. So it's nice being around, you know, young interns and people, you know, intellectual minds who I really admire, who kind of motivate me to think a certain way and remind me that I'm not alone as a young conservative.
0: Um, what do you want to do when you grow up?
3: Uh, great question. <laughs> Cop-out answer. But um, I think this summer has made me realize that I think I really want to pursue journalism. Um, as I said, I work for the Cavalier Daily right now. I've been an opinion, opinion columnist. I guess I'm too young to really use that term. Huh? But um, I think I'd want to pursue um, reporting because I think I kind of want to get on the objective side of journalism before my dream job would be to become an opinion syndicated columnist. We'll see where I end up, but maybe law school. I don't know. <laughs> no, don't go to law school.
0: <laughs> and um, so has has Audrey been on The Young Americans? No. No. I see. So it's kind of outrageous because she's actually more of a young American than you are. <laughs> that's that's, the, that's, that's one not of the- how I... Choose guests. If he did, you just have one infant on after another. Yeah, exactly. I would just go <laughs> to a
2: purest of young Americans. I would just go to a maternity ward and interview successive birth <laughs> infants.
0: Um. Um. So, are you a what do you call yourself generationally? Are you you're a, you're a Gen Z, a Gen what? Do you care about this stuff?
3: I think it's Gen Gen Z. Gen yeah. Z. Yeah.
0: At UVA, you know, which is sort of like. I would assume it's like UVA and University of Michigan and what, like UCLA are probably the three top state universities? Berkeley. Berkeley, yeah, okay. Does this generational stuff actually inform a lot of the conversation? Do people say, you know, as a Gen Z something or anything like that, do they really care about what cohort they were born in?
3: Not really Gen Z. It's weird because everyone just talks about millennials. And I feel like a lot of people who are my age, even though I'm technically not a millennial, people think that we're millennials. So, you know, when you're talking about like the technological revolution and you know, all of this culture war stuff, people use the term millennial, but not really. I guess I gen is like another yeah,
0: yeah. phrase. I get called a baby boomer. I'm not a baby boomer.
3: Yeah. So. Um so I don't know, I guess
0: <laughs> Yeah. But. And uh what was the worst part about interning for Jack Butler? <laughs> <The worst
3: part? laughs> hmm. I don't know. We got along really well. I think we share a similar sense of humor, which is what I really appreciate. I could tell from my interview that we were going to get along.
0: I, I didn't know that Jack had one. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Well, Audrey, thank you for all the hard work. We really appreciate it. If there's any last final thoughts you have, we're welcome to, you're welcome to provide them. And uh, Are you telling her that or me? I'm telling the room that. Oh, okay. I, I have to write a G file, which, I have, which people yeah. should sign up for. Um, well,
2: Reagan35x.com. Uh, but I just want to, before before we close here, I just want to call you a plagiarist because you are stealing my ideas. You In ju- the latest glop, which was very funny, you called Trump the god emperor of Dune, uh-huh. and you didn't even credit me for it. And that is cl- that is not an idea. You've read Dune, but you have never made that connection before. That is an idea original to me, and you should have given me credit, and I'm just going to shame
0: you for that now. I should. You get credit for it. There okay, you go. that's all I wanted. Yeah, no, no. Look, it was in my head. If I didn't mention you, I apologize. We'd I was been mentioned... talking about it last week. I was going to do a whole riff about it in the G file, and then it went on the cutting room floor. Right.
2: I, and it, I had my copy of God Emperor of Dune with me, so I was like compulsively searching through it. But yeah, so you did. I was mentioned elsewhere in that episode, but just not there, and maybe, I found that suspicious.
0: Maybe, uh, maybe it was my conscience pinging me. Yeah, that I hadn't mentioned you earlier about it. And so I or, wanted to get your name in elsewhere.
2: Or maybe it was that Ixian device that I had implanted in you that was doing the pinging.
0: Okay. Let's stop. <laughs> let's cauterize that wound right there.
2: <laughs> um, That's all. That's all I have to say.
0: All right. So everybody, uh, it would be great if you could sign up for the G-File at reagan35x.com.
2: Oh, actually, I have one more thing to say. I talked about D- God and Dune in a podcast, Legendarium podcast. It's going to be in the show notes now because I mentioned it.
0: Le- and what is it, the Legendarium podcast?
2: It's a podcast for sci-fi and fantasy nerds, which I officially am one now, if that wasn't official already. I think
0: you'd had you'd achieve premier status on that airline a long time ago. <laughs> yes. um, okay, yeah. No, look, again, Reagan35x.com is where you sign up for the G-File. The project that Steve Hayes and this guy Toby Stock and I are launching is, is, is rapidly speeding up. In fact, it's becoming so serious that frickin' Steve Hayes is actually coming home from Spain soon. (laughs) Um, Wow. Yeah. And and we incorporated last week. We're almost done raising our money, at least we hope to be. And uh, we're looking at office space and we're looking at hiring people and not hiring people and all sorts of different things. And I uh, recommend
2: hiring people as opposed to not hiring people. If that's what you are looking for? It depends on the people.
0: <laughs> uh, but as
2: a, like, the general
0: it, it, choice of hiring them or not hiring? Look, statistically speaking, I am not going to hire about 99.9999999% of the planet. That's true. Yeah. So, Fair um, point. And, and mostly, because most of them are disqualified, are unqualified for the jobs at hand. Yeah. And, and the, it's the support of you guys, the people who actually, for whom, particular the Remnant stuff resonates, um, is going to be a big part of whether we succeed or not. And if you could sign up, that would be great. If you could tell people to subscribe to the podcast, that would be great. And uh, you'll be hearing more about this stuff soon. I, 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 this is going to bother Jack a great deal. I think we need to do another Woodrow Wilson podcast. Um, because... Why don't you just hold a seance and <laughs> get him? Do you know what gibbeting is? I've heard the word before. Yeah, it's the process by which you you basically dig up or otherwise retrieve oh right the, the bodies of bad people putting them on trial and then you either put them on trial or you just hang them again. Oh, okay. and I I think the gibbeting of Woodrow Wilson uh, needs to continue and in part because look I love David David Beatrice, who was on here recently and I thought it was fun nerdy I he didn't quite want to go where I wanted to go I didn't quite go where he was trying to go at times. And I want to get. I think. I think we got to get Steve Hayward on here and talk about the, the sort of the political theory stuff. Uh, David was too into the facts. You know, and, what, a, you know, the, no, what a loser! The historical narrative stuff, which is great, and I loved it. But we got to we got to put Hegel on the dock. And uh, wait, wait, who are we? Who are we gibbeting here? Hegel, Wilson. The entire crew, right? I mean, like, when when you catch your Danny Ocean, you got to get the guys with them, you know, and everyone's on trial. So...
2: Like the season finale of... So- oh, no, in the season finale of Seinfeld, it's everyone else who's a witness at the trial. That's right. Never mind.
0: So, anyway, um, I don't know why I got into that, but I just wanted to tease that out there. Anyway, thank you every- to everybody at the end. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you, Jack. Uh, thank you, <laughs> Tim Alberta. And... um I wish you guys could. Oh, and I'm not going to be around next week, but we've got some stuff in the can. Uh huh. And um,
2: like this pod, this is this is in the can.
0: That's right. And uh, like Prince Albert. And uh, anyway, I'll see you on the next podcast. No, you won't. This is podcast. It's a good book. Have to say. All right. Are we recording? Uh-huh. Are you recording? Is your mic on? Yeah. Okay. And your mic? Okay. Well, we'll see.